because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. This week is going to be a little bit different than usual. Instead of inviting a guest to uh, for me to interview, I am actually going to be interviewed. And, and the reason is, a week or two ago, I was interviewed by Heidi McKillop, who is a filmmaker based in Canada, who has a really interesting story because she went from being very anti the Canadian oil and gas industry to being very pro that industry. And I really enjoyed the interview. She asked a lot of interesting questions that I think elicited uh, a lot of my latest thinking about energy issues, environmental issues, how to communicate, the current administration in the US, the prospects for Canada, what strategies we should adopt to try to change things. And I thought it would be really interesting to listeners of Power Hour. So that will be this week's show. Hope you enjoy the interview and I'll be back with you on the other side. Hello everyone, my name is Heidi McKillop. I'm a director and producer for Strand Nation documentary. I have today here Alex Epstein. He is the author of Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. So um, first of all, I want to say thank you for having Alex here today. And one of the most interesting thing is with this journey that I took um, from an anti-oil and gas um, advocate towards being now an advocate for the industry is I actually read your book a couple of years ago and it was recommended to me. And it was one of the first things I read uh, when I started to go through this. So I really appreciate and it's quite a personal journey for me um, and also having you here today. So uh, I'm actually really curious, though, like, how did you come about being an advocate and what was that journey like for you? So, I mean, the very short version is that my background and kind of lifetime love is philosophy, which is really about what are the fundamental principles that guide our thinking and our lives. And I was always very into logical thinking. And that includes always when you're evaluating a decision, looking at what I would call the full context weighing both the benefits and side effects of every alternative. And one thing, once I started to learn a little bit about energy, I noticed is that when people were talking about fossil fuels or nuclear, they'd tend to only talk about negative side effects. And then when they talked about solar or wind, they'd only talk about benefits. And so whenever I see a bias like that, it really intrigues me as to what's the actual truth. And then the more I dug in, the more I realized that I was coming to conclusions that were unconventional, but that to me were inescapable. That's right. And so what would you say on, um, I guess, maybe as a devil's advocate here, if you were to say that to say an environmentalist or someone that was opposing your book or opposing your views, uh, what would you, uh, what would be the counterintuitive argument to that? To them? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, if they're classifying themselves as an environmentalist, I mean, I would want to get clear, does that mean that you want the planet to be a really good place for human beings to live? Because sometimes people think of environmentalists as that, and sometimes they think of it as a place where humans have had no impact. And Mm -hmm. one point I would make is that those are two totally different planets, a planet that is a really good place for human beings to live and a planet in which human beings have made no impact are two different planets. We had a planet in which we made virtually no impact for a couple hundred thousand years and life was very bad. The planet is not a naturally nourishing place. It doesn't produce enough food and clean water for us. It's a very dangerous place. It does produce a lot of different kinds of threats to us. It's not a place where we have a lot of opportunity for fulfillment because we're so focused on overcoming its basic deficiencies and dangers. And so I would just want them to first realize that there's something very special 
about the world we live in today. The world we live in today, whatever its problems, is the most nourishing and safe and opportunity-filled world that has ever existed. And if they, if I could get them on board to that, then I would start talking about, okay, how do we improve this? As in, but we need to first understand what's making it so good. And, and one thing I would really try to get across is that overwhelmingly the thing that's making it good is that machines are producing value for us. The whole problem we have is the earth is naturally deficient and dangerous. It doesn't give us what we need. It gives us a lot of threats. We need to produce different kinds of values to nourish ourselves and protect ourselves. We ourselves are very physically weak. So we need machines to produce most of the value for us. And so the, the world we live in today is a machine labor civilization. It's a civilization in which machines do most of our productive work for us and energy is machine food. So the only reason we have this machine labor civilization is because we have machine food that's low cost, reliable, versatile, meaning it can do a whole bunch of different activities like from flying a plane to carrying a cargo ship to running a tractor. And then it's, it's global scale. So it's, it's for billions of people. And I would also just add one more thing, which is that there are billions of people right now who don't live in a machine labor civilization. They use machines and energy so little that their lives very much resemble the primitive lives of the past. And, and in fact, they would resemble them a lot more were it not for the help of the machine labor world, which helps out what I call the unempowered world in many, many ways. Absolutely. And you're correct on that. And I kind of always reflect on, uh, especially being here in Alberta and Calgary, we have a lot of celebrities that have come out from LA and have a lot of uh, different folks. And most people out here, um, especially our roots, are very based in the mountains. It's all cowboy country. It's a lot of farming. It's a lot of naturalistic things. And we, we spend a ton of time outside. So it's kind of interesting for us because we get um, these arguments quite regularly from, from folks coming in and criticizing our industry. And we're set. We're sitting here saying no. Like our 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 water is clean out here. We take care of our environment. We we care about the mountains. We care about conservation. So I think it kind of goes into this larger argument as well. Um, you know, folks coming, like I said, from coming outside and coming into our borders and really having an impact on our industry and our jobs as I mean, well. I think of it if you know my my. I mentioned that I had uncon. I've developed unconventional views, and I come from philosophy. And I think. The main thing that makes me have an unconventional view is my view of environment or of the planet, which is I look at the planet from a human-centered perspective, which means I want the planet to be as human-friendly a place as possible. And if that's really your, your premise, then you have to love both the beautiful parts of nature and the amazing things that human nature has created. And I don't, I don't draw a separation between those in the same way that I think most people do. Like I regard it all as our human environment or as our planet. I don't regard it as, oh, it's ugly if we built a building. Now we can build an ugly building, but we can also build a beautiful <laughs> building. And you know, historically, one of my heroes is Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, the architect. And one thing I like about him is he just has this amazing architecture that he's really working with nature and he's creating things where the, the environment around you is better than the one nature created, but it doesn't devalue the beauty of the natural environment. Uh, it doesn't create something new that's ugly, but it creates something new that's, that's beautiful. And I think that's, that's the best kind of approach to environment. But I think a lot of what often gets, ha what often happens is people who are against human impact. So against human beings producing a lot of new things mm -hmm. tend to claim to love nature. And so we have this package of, oh, you love nature and you hate human nature. Mm -hmm. And no, I love nature and human nature. And I want 
to combine them to have the best possible human environment. Yeah, and that was something that really resonated me when I read your book the first time. I've read it through a couple of times actually now. And uh, it was that concept of, you know, you don't have to be ashamed in a sense to be human. You know, this is, this is something that you have to take as a reality check that living outside of a fossil fuel environment and living outside of what our, our plastics and what our uh, petroleum byproducts, it has made our lives completely different in every facet from modern medicine to our conveniences to, you know, whatever it is that would be shopping. So there's not one part of oil and gas that does not impact our lives. Yeah, and it's overwhelmingly positive. So, you know, we want, obviously we always want to improve. So we want to do that better and, and we want to find better things in the future. But to find better things in the future, you have to, you have to understand how good the current thing is and what's made it so unique. It's like if you, if you said, okay, I want to outcompete steel, I'd say, okay, that's a great aspiration, but you really need to understand why steel is so universally used. And you can't say, oh, I've got an exciting new plan to get rid of all steel in 30 years. That's not an exciting plan. That's a, just an act of mass destruction. Yeah. One thing that I've, I've learned through my advocacy as well is very simplistic messaging is really important to me because my hometown and my area of the world in Canada is largely anti-oil and gas. So they have a fracking ban in my province and it's been um, recently lifted a little bit uh, with new administration, but it's been a huge contention for the last you know, 10 years. So we have a lot of uh, work to be done in terms of um, politics, in terms of really understanding where, where our imports are coming from, our exports are coming from which kind of gives us into the next conversation because uh, in New Brunswick, we import, we have Irving Refinery, I'm not sure if you're familiar with them, but they import primarily all of the oil and gas through there from Saudi Arabia. So mm. when I talk to my, my family and my folks back home, I'm like, well, where would you like to see your oil come from? You know, do you want to see it from Alberta or do you want to see it from the states that are an equally democratic country or do you want to see it from Saudi Arabia? And I, it's really fascinating to me because they go, well, what does that matter? You know, or, or I get the other opposite reaction Well, they'll say, well, does it come from there? Like they don't know. And it's, and it's really odd to me that um, that's not widely taught and it's not uh, acknowledged, right? So like how important to you is North American energy security? And why is it important that Canada and the United States work together on this issue? Yeah, there's, there's a lot in the example that you shared. I think, I think one thing is that we should be on the premise that we need to recognize how the world works and what choices we make. And all of us are choosing to use fossil fuels, including oil and gas. So everyone is choosing to live in a modern civilization. Just about everything you use is produced using some fossil fuel, including solar and wind. They're overwhelmingly produced using fossil fuels. They can't survive without perpetual fossil fuel backup. So everybody has to take ownership of the fact that we're using fossil fuels and we're using fossil fuels for a reason. And, And I totally reject this idea that you can just say, oh, I hate fossil fuels. So I don't then have to think about any of these decisions like, oh, does the oil come from Saudi Arabia? Or like, I'm going to just disavow it. And so I'd, no, you are avowing it. Like you love fossil fuels in practice, even if you claim to hate them. So I think it's just very important to recognize the choices that we're all making. And they are choices. Anyone can choose to die or anyone can choose to go live in a really impoverished place that's using virtually no uh, fossil fuel. Now you have to get use fossil fuel to even get there in a, re- in a reasonable um, 
amount of time, but somebody could probably fashion together, you know, chop down some trees with wood and fashion a sailboat and go across to some primitive country. But nobody's doing that because they like the world that we have, but they don't acknowledge it. So that's, that's one point in terms of we all need to take responsibility for our actual choices and why we're making them. In terms of uh, energy security. So if you think of energy security as the continuous availability of a low cost, reliable energy supply, there are two ways in which that's so important. One is just your, your basic civilization. As I said, we live in a machine labor civilization. So everything about our lives requires continuous fuel for the machines that produce all these values. If those machines starve, we literally uh, starve. And if, if the price of feeding those machines goes up, the price of everything goes up. So that's one sense in which energy security is important. It's just the basic functioning of our civilization. Um, another one is foreign policy wise, because energy is so important, if it's not secure, it makes us much more vulnerable to manipulation by other countries. So you can look at how Europe, parts of Europe get manipulated by Russia. Historically, arguably the US has been manipulated in different ways by Saudi Arabia. And so if you don't have an, if you don't take the actions necessary to have a secure energy supply, mm -hmm. then you are going, you're not going to not need it. You are going to be manipulated by your need for it. And then the, the final thing I'd add a third is just if God forbid we get into a conflict, one of the decisive variables in conflict is do you have enough fuel for the conflict? But there's a great book called The Prize by Daniel Jurgen, and he chronicles how in both World War I and World War II, oil shortages harmed the loser. And the ability to produce energy from oil, which is the fuel of mobility, and mobility is the key to war, you know, the, the ones who had the oil won the war. So people who are just talking, who are destroying or attacking our energy security, they are, are playing with, I mean, they're playing with fire, they're really playing with nuclear bombs, because ultimately you can be at risk of that if you don't have energy security. Well, yeah, and I think for me as a Canadian, I get really upset about these kind of conversations because, you know, we look at Canada being the second largest landmass in the world. It's a huge country. We don't have a lot of people. We're completely underpopulated compared to other, you know, superpowers in the world. And it really um, is astounding to me that we have a federal government, um, two terms now, that really doesn't stand up for energy security. And it doesn't really... Um, it plays with this very dangerous line of natural resource development. And, you know, and it's, and this is why oil and gas conversation is so important to me is that it's not just about oil and gas. It's about water. It's about agriculture. It's about all sorts of mining processes that happen in Canada and all the jobs that depend on that are, are exactly our middle class. So really, to me, it's, it's really um, so much broader, you know, that's got to be taking into us a much larger context in terms of what we want to see. And personally, I'd like to see Canada use more of its natural resources and buy our own oil and gas before we sell most of it to the United States. And then from there, partner with people that are democratic by nature, right? Because again, like you're, when you're supporting Saudi Arabia and you're supporting Russia imports, you're supporting all their standards of human rights, you're supporting their environmental rights, you're supporting all these different things that whatever practices they have in that country, you're demanding that product from them. And they're not transparent countries. So, you know, they're going to continue having these margins that we can't compete with, right? And then on top of it, we have a ton of environmental groups that are saying, 
we don't want to see any development whatsoever. We don't care how environmentally friendly you're going to be. We don't care about the technology you're going to use. We're just going to shut the whole thing down. And that's fine and well for them. But when we have politics and we have uh, politicians that are also agreeing with that, it makes it very difficult, you know, to see progress happen here. Yeah, and it's, it's just incredibly, you know, with some things you consume, it doesn't make sense to produce them. I mean, there's something called you know, division of labor and what's called comparative advantage. And so some, some things, you know, certain kinds of coffee, you probably don't want to produce in Canada or certain agricultural products because it's interestingly, why is Canada underpopulated? In part because it's really cold. So this yeah. whole obsession with, oh, warming is a huge problem. Well, that's not actually a huge problem for uh, uh, for most people. But if you look at just, yeah, certain things, it doesn't make sense to produce everything domestically, but energy is something where there's a premium on producing it domestically if you can, because the security of it is so important. And the more hostility there is among energy producers in the world, and there's quite a bit today, the more that's an imperative. But when, when particularly when you can cost effectively do it, as we can in many ways in the US and in Canada, it's particularly crazy not to produce it and to because you're still consuming it. So there's no, once you stop consuming it, then, I mean, if other people want it, it probably still makes sense to produce it, but you're consuming it right now. And this is what I, I talk about with the responsibility and recognizing reality. All of these people are consuming it. And even when they think they're consuming solar and wind, they're not consuming as much as they think they are. And that's all made possible by fossil fuel. So as long as you need to consume this to live, it is certainly to your advantage to produce it. And it's crazy to stop producing it, particularly in a world with a lot of hostility. Because as I said before, you just put yourself at the mercy of these manipulations. And if you, you know, we had blackouts in, where I live in California um, a couple months ago, like, nobody likes that for even two hours. And even just, I had, a, I had a virtual speech to give and it's just, you start scrambling and you think, oh my gosh, can I go? So is there anywhere with power? Like you just, and, and you just think about, how much you could be manipulated if you were four days into yes, a blackout exactly. or if you had a gas shortage and you're freezing, you know, which is a real thing. Like, as I said, people are playing with fire and they have no idea. They're just consuming, I mean, they're just consuming all, they're just consuming this energy, high energy machine labor civilization. They're just consumers of it and there's no awareness of it. But I think it's why it's, it's important to really raise it and to say, hey, this is an amazing thing. You are acknowledging it's an amazing thing by taking advantage of it. I, I judge people by actions much more than words. If you act on the fact that this is really good for your life and you benefit from it, then, you're, then you are affirming that through your action. I don't care what you say. If you think it's bad, go act on that. Yeah. Then you should definitely leave Canada because you can't I, live I, in I, Canada without fossil fuels. Well, we're, uh, you know, obviously, well, I guess it's February 1st today, but it has been very cold the last two weeks. So, you know, and I've been cold always... in Malibu, it's snowed in, <laughs> I mean, it's just, this just is a, a minor point, but there's just no acknowledgement of how the world actually works. And there's, there's a, this glorification, this worship of nature. As I said, I love nature, but I, I recognize, I think of it as wild potential. We need to impact it a lot intelligently to mm -hmm. make it a livable place. And just this idea that John Kerry, our new climate envoy, he has this crazy speech where he's given where he says, oh, you know, there's a perfect level of CO2 and that gives us a perfect temperature of 57. It's like, what world are you living in? The temperatures fluctuate, you know, by a hundred degrees plus around mm -hmm. the world. The global climate system is diverse. It's dynamic. It's dangerous. Like the key is we need 
the energy and machines to cope with this thing. And you just see like when the temperatures go up, people have this idea of, oh, they're going up so fast and the whole world is burning versus no, they've gone up one degree in the last 170 years and it's still snowing in Malibu and in Hawaii. So the idea that you're prioritizing this above your, your very ability to survive uh, just shows that it's not a focus on human life. Oh, we've had a ton of issues up here as well. And one of them is our, one of our leaders, I don't know if you heard in the news down there, but she stood up and said, oil is dead. And I mean, it went viral all over Canada. And that's all we talked about for about two weeks, Elizabeth May. And, you know, mm. to be a leader of this country and say, one of the leaders, you know, she's not obviously um, our prime minister, but it's just crazy to me. You know, it's like, why do you have that platform? How are you able to stand up and say oil is dead? It's not. <laughs> like, it's I mean, it's more like you'd be dead without oil. That's yeah, that's pretty much it. Oh man, she she really upset all of the West. It's, you know, it's just a slap in her face, um, which kind of gives me the next kind of conversation here, which is XL pipeline and also line five that goes up through um, Michigan. There's a lot of opposition um, about that. And it's going to hugely impact Canadians if uh, Line 5 is closed. Not only does it carry gasoline and jet fuel and propane to Ontario and Quebec, um, but it's also a huge uh, loss for jobs. You know, that's another thing that we always have to consider. And so what do you make of all this? And how do you uh, address the politics in the States as well that you guys are also coping with? Yeah, it's, it's a really, I mean, I really sympathize with Canada. That's part of why I wanted to do this interview because it's, it's so unjust. And I mean, the current administration in the US is just, there's not a lot of rosy things to say. I think there's a pretty strong opposition and I, I do some work with the opposition. Like I, I work with elected officials and try to help them come up with good messaging mm. to counter this. But right now in the United States, we have a president who's committed to this idea of, of just fossil fuel elimination for electricity by 2035 and for everything by 2050. And none of that is remotely possible and will happen, but the direction of it is basically anything he can get his hands on that is connected in his mind to fossil fuels, he will destroy yeah. and he will destroy righteously. So it's just like, you know, Keystone, there's no, no thought about why does this thing exist? Like, why is this company, uh, TC Energy now, why are they spent a dozen years on this thing? Well, it's because it's really a valuable thing where mm -hmm. it, the oil we get from Canada is particularly valuable for many of our refineries and the oil we get from fracking doesn't work with all of our, there's just all of these details that nobody has any interest, that, that the, I would say the destroyers or the blockers yeah. have no interest in. And it's, I think strategically, if I'm just thinking from Canada's viewpoint, is just really recognizing that there is this, this Keystone XL opposition is the sign of things to come from the current administration and to be really, to be really aggressive in, in criticizing the U.S. and putting any kind of pressure on the U.S., which Trudeau is not doing no. remotely. No. Um, I think the premier of Alberta has done some really good stuff mm -hmm. on this, but you, I mean, you need it. It's hard for Canada to put pressure on the U.S. anyway, just to be frank about things. So you definitely would need it coming from the top. And then I don't know what all the strategic options are, but it's really bad that there's in Canada, I've done some work there too, just that there's opposition to any, like Energy East, there was opposition to, there's just opposition to Trans Mountain. Like, I think there there is a real chance for an awakening in Canada to recognize, hey, this is crucial to us. This is crucial to our economy. And to just, I'd say the most important thing is take the moral high ground away 
from the blockers and the destroyers and to say, hey, we are making the world a better and better place to live. We are doing something that's making all of our lives possible, including you, the blockers and the destroyers. And you are not, you're not doing anything good. You're not doing anything constructive. If you care about CO2 emissions, if that's your priority, then you need to come up with real innovations mm -hmm. that can produce low cost, reliable energy with a lot less CO2. And that means you should support things like nuclear, but these people can no longer be allowed to just to, to block and to destroy with this idea that they're against fossil fuels because they're using fossil fuels, they're offering no viable alternative and they should, they should be viewed as, I don't know, I don't know if it's an ex, how common an expression, but like the, almost the peanut gallery, you know, like people who are watching an event and who are just the losers who are just complaining about everything. I think it should be really this, okay, these guys are blockers, we're builders, it's time for you guys to get out of the way mm -hmm. and then see, like really explore all your options for what can be built because it is a tough at least next two years in the U.S. with our Congress and with this president. Well, I think the problem is with that we really cope with out here is, um, like I said, for me being a New Brunswicker, so born, raised East Coast my whole life, I moved to Alberta, and there's not a lot of connection um, across Canada. So we have, you know, East Coast Canada, which is pretty, pretty kind of in its own little world, and you've got Central Ontario and Quebec that are constantly at, at odds with each other. And depending on, you know, if you look at our prime ministers, most of them have in the you know, last probably arguably 10 years have come from, except for Stephen Harper from Quebec in Ontario. So what happens though is in 2019, we had a propane shortage here in Quebec. And uh, it was so ironic because the oil and gas companies out here stepped up and actually ended up sending a bunch of propane uh, to Quebec. Because number one, what happened was the nursing homes were at shortage. So it was the most vulnerable people in the, in the culture and the society that ended up getting hurt. And it was because of the blockades um, going, into, uh, going into Quebec. So it was environmental blockades. And it still did not get the messaging. It did not hit the news. It, didn't, it wasn't as important as what people really made it out to be. There was a little bit of coverage, but we're also under this huge problem of our national news network um, are largely against fossil fuels. So for us to actually communicate with Ontario and Quebec, it's, it's really difficult. So like Premier Jason Kenney has done a really good job. He's tried to reach out. He's done a lot of um, opposition work in this area. But we're, we're definitely combating a lot of different, like you said, uh, going addressing a morality issue, but also getting coverage, right? Media coverage. So I don't know if you have any like tips for people or like how you normally do things uh, where you're from, because I know you have a lot of opposition in California too. Uh, how do you kind of cope with that kind of conversation or a strategy, I should say? Well, so I do think the most important thing is just the moral confidence, which includes like the moral disdain for the destroyers, not, not there's too much of oh, you're in, your heart is in the right place, you're good, I agree with your ideals, I'm against fossil fuels too, but it's going to take a little longer. Like that kind of thing, nobody will pay attention to you mm. if you have that. So even like with me, I have the moral case for fossil fuels. I have, like I've been in New York City, like holding a sign that says, I love fossil fuels in the middle of a- I car. love that. <laughs> like it gets much more attention to mm. have a really clear positive view right. and then a negative view of the opposition than to just have a compromising a compromised view of like, oh, I think your heart's in the right place, but uh, you know, you're you're still great, and I wish you know, I really admire you, and so I think that's that is the the positioning that's very important. 
but then I would think about, I mean, I, I would just impress upon people, this is an extreme time. So you have to think about extreme measures in terms of standing up, saying things, and I don't want to advocate for anything that I don't know exactly what the laws are, but at least should be communicated that these people deserve to have their power cut off. Like mm -hmm. that should at least be communicated that, and that, and as related that they, if not for us, you would have killed these people in nursing homes. Like I would have just be very, at, at minimum, clear about that. Like the, you know, the anti-oil and gas or the, the blockers um, in Canada and have really negative names for them. Like these people would have killed this many people in nursing homes and just be very clear. And then uh, with the news network, I mean, I, just anything you could, I mean, what's actually deserved is to have the power cut off and the oil cut off and the gas cut. So I don't know the logistics of doing that, but that's, it should be at least communicated that that's deserved. And certainly for, uh, you know, these news networks and I mean, just everybody is being a para, everybody who's, who's condemning it is a parasite committing an injustice. It's so funny because that's such a, when you're just speaking there, it's such a Canadian versus American kind of. I know, I was going to say that. <laughs> but I'm even extreme for, I mean, I'm quite extreme for an American. So it's even, I've had this issue in Canada where it's just American audiences, particularly in, in yeah. industry, like they, it'll be kind of like I'm, like I'm like a pick me up or I'm, I'm at the, like they can, it can be, that can be motivating to them. Mm -hmm. because I'm more extreme. Whereas in Canada, sometimes it can be, oh, just like, this makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. Like, whatever. I mean, because it's just, there's this cliche of, oh, Canada, Canadians say sorry all the time and apologize mm -hmm. all the time. Uh, yeah. so I, I don't, I'm not a mass, you, you, you know, you, you can be the expert in how to translate this stuff. But mm -hmm. I mean, if, look, the, the anti-oil and gas Canadians certainly are not very reticent. So I don't see them apologizing. Yeah, so they're they're from Canada, so it's 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 all about who who thinks they have the moral high ground, and, well, and some they, of them are from Canada. Think, some of them are actually brought up from for, oh, that's for professional protesting. So that's a that's a hard one to go by. <laughs> but you know, Canada, there is so one thing I've noticed that's exciting, and and I've been more. I mean, I've been throughout Canada, but I've spent more time in Alberta than other places. But even if you compare Alberta to Houston, Alberta has a lot more kind of organic grassroots support for mm -hmm. industry, probably because it's so opposed uh, mm -hmm. throughout Canada. Like the uh, I love, you know, I created this I love fossil fuels thing. And in Canada, there's the I love oil and gas. And I think With Cody, Cody is, well. is, is one of the, yeah, he's yeah. done an amazing job. And I would just loved it when I would go there and I'd see restaurants having those signs. Yes. Like yeah. In the yeah. US, we don't, we don't have that in part because it's, it's not as extreme a situation. And so people are reluctant. They don't stand up as proactively as I think they, they would benefit from doing. But it, it, you know, I think that there is a lot of potential in Canada and the, the reality, you just need to keep pointing out the reality of we're making the world a better place, they're making the world a worse place. And just with one, you know, a thing we haven't really discussed much is with the whole green energy thing, I think it's important that this is something that is not a cost-effective substitute at all. Certainly not for mobility, not for industrial heat, uh, mm -hmm. not, for, not for electricity on its own. It's still, and, and it's important, and I, I have a website, energytalkingpoints.com, that has a lot of specific facts about this. Just around the world, green energy, because it's unreliable, 
it's jacking up prices because it's not replacing the reliable energy. It's adding to the cost. And then it's decreasing the reliability because people are trying to get away with shutting down reliable power plants. It's not working. Mm-hmm. And people need to know that this green energy ideal uh, and, and aspiration, this is, not, this, is not, this is not an inspiring, brilliant idea about the future. This is something that's failing in the present, even on a small scale. And so we should be very in favor of alternatives but we want to have alternatives that actually can outcompete what works today. Because if we don't have alternatives that outcompete, what we do is just unilateral sacrifice. The Canada sacrifices, the U.S. sacrifices. We make our energy less secure, less reliable, more expensive, mm. and then and and we do that buying solar panels and wind turbines made in China using coal. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So that's that's the reality of the green. Uh, economy and it's great for them because coal is a great way of producing expensive products that then the U.S. and Canada will overbuy. Mm-hmm, absolutely, and that's and that's what I always say um, to folks when they're in, in. If I'm doing any kind of speaking, speaking or any kind of conference, um, I love doing it because I'm not an engineer. I'm not. I I didn't grow up in this world, so. For me, it's very easy to say and just say, you know, very simple points like you said, going back to your base, um, whatever it is, if even if it's a wind farm, you know, the, the amount of coal and the amount of steel it takes to manufacture an onshore wind farm and an offshore wind farm, just on the energy point, that's that's a little bit engineering, it's a little bit confusing for the average person, but I just, just talk about like your toothpaste or your makeup or your clothes or, you know, your water bottles, like whatever it may be that you touch, which we're all, we're all using, that's not going to go away. So I think that's really usually my driving point. Like even if you just take out the energy conversation, which is a huge aspect, there's still the consumption and the consumer part of it, which is our, it's our byproducts. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can't escape this conversation. And I think um, folks will, I find Canadians anyway, especially back East, uh, that's been the most important messaging because, it, you know, I think we've heard so much in the news up here that we're going to move away from fossil fuels and we're going to move away from coal burning electricity and that kind of thing. And they're not really making that connection to their everyday lives, right? Yeah, that's very important. It seems like that's what you guys are focused on with storytelling, which is... Yes. Yeah, that's right. That's the only thing that we can do, you know, I think in terms of uh, really driving the message home where it's personal. Um, and I know for myself, obviously, with my story being, you know, anti because I, I went to a, a liberal arts school, and I did social work and then just a general sociology degree. And so my whole, uh, my whole upbringing in uh, education system was completely anti oil and gas and economics and completely um, based on a socialism, right? So I definitely understand where folks have been taught and where they're coming from and what they believe in. And it's really not um, a fair reality of the world and it's not a well-rounded conversation. And that's unfortunately has been a driving part in our educational system as well. It goes, it's all systemic, right? Yeah, I mean, one thing, since I know you're focused on stories, I think it's, it's so, I think we have a shortage, big shortage of stories on our side and, and proper storytelling and a couple of the categories I think are really important. So one is just the failure of green energy around the world. So green energy, making energy less affordable and less reliable for people. And they're like stories out of the you know, UK that I just think about, like people to stay warm because the fuel prices are so high now in the winter and it's of course cold there mm-hmm. you know people burning old books literally burning old books to stay warm or sitting in libraries all day or riding buses all day 
you know, just huddling there to like, this is what we've descended to. And people need to know that this is what's happening. And this mm -hmm. is, this is the glorious Korean future. Another thing is just the, the stories of how the stuff is made, how it's made in China, how it's made in the Congo, what the working conditions are like. And so they need to understand right. both the green things aren't green they're not so the first point is they're not really energy the second point is the stories but they're not really green and knowing that okay when you're supporting this amazing green future this is currently how it's done and in part the stuff is so expensive that people they're doing anything they can to cut costs and there are all these human rights abuses and then i think a third category of story is the people who are using fossil fuels to improve their lives so reading something about tanzania and people using uh lpg which is an oil derivative for for uh, clean cooking and heating their homes. And th uh, they talk about, you know, those things can save two hours a day of manual labor on the part of the, you think about that, like two hours a day saved from, mostly from the women in the home. And those are the stories of empowerment that are happening. And those are the stories that, that the blockers are trying to stop. In the US, for example, Biden just had his list of aspirations and executive orders. And I believe in that he talks explicitly about, we want to end international financing of fossil fuel products. Well, goodbye, clean cooking fuel, Tanzania. And there's something like only 2% of people have it there, 98% don't. Most of them are using wood and animal dung. And mm -hmm. so if, if you get the story right. about people around the world are using fossil fuels to make their lives better, mm -hmm. uh, people are restricting fossil fuels and making their lives worse The green energy. And then that green energy is produced in this incredibly inhumane way. If people get those, there are other stories too. But uh, I mean, the fourth one I would add is just how good we are, how safe our climate is compared to the past, because we're so good at mastering it with all this high all these high energy machines. Like if they get those stories, then they'll see, oh wow, fossil fuels are making the world better. And yeah. this green energy movement is making things worse. And if you want to make it even better, you have to be for innovation, including nuclear. You can't be, you can't be for destroying what works now because you can imagine that something else would work better. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, I just want to say thank you again for your time. It, it's been such a great conversation and uh, best of luck with everything you do. And I know um, you definitely inspired me and you've definitely had a huge impact on my, my personal advocacy life. So, you know, if you ever feel down now and you're like, okay, I'm not making a difference. It really is amazing what you can do and what you can reach and, and uh, how well you're doing that. Well, it's great. I think the listener should take heart that, you know, both of us sort of started in obscurity and then <laughs> I'm able to influence you and others and you're able to influence others. So one person with, with conviction and who comes to, especially if you come to it honestly, I think, like yeah. you didn't expect to agree with it and you do, you can make, you can make a lot of, of difference. So yeah, uh, thanks for having me. And I just remind people if they're interested, energytalkingpoints.com. And then my website is industrialprogress.com if they want. I have a whole bunch of resources that people can use. Perfect. Love that. Well, thanks again, Alex. All right. Thanks to Heidi McKillop for interviewing me and for uh, giving me total permission to use the interview on my podcast. I hope you enjoyed the interview. I really enjoyed talking to her and I look forward to following her different uh, videos and other projects in the future. Just to wrap up the show, as always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me at alex at alexepstein.com. I particularly want to single out, uh, follow me on Twitter if you like Twitter. Now, don't, don't 
ruin your life by becoming addicted to Twitter. And if you want a tip, I highly recommend using the lists. I think it's the lists feature of Twitter. That's what I use almost exclusively. So you can make a list of people and that way you are just following the people that you think are worth following. So you could even just make a list that's just Alex Epstein uh, on Twitter. I find that if I just go to the main Twitter page, it's got all of Twitter, what Twitter thinks is important, which is often some combination of what I would regard as propaganda and then also just totally unhealthy stimulation with anything it can uh, distract me with or, or stimulate me with. So use the lists feature if you have any misgivings about Twitter, but twitter.com slash Alex Epstein. I'm posting a lot of new talking points there. I also have talking points at energytalkingpoints.com. Uh, so check that out. But the Twitter account has the latest stuff. So wanted to make sure to emphasize that. Also, if you are not on my mailing list, highly recommend it. Get there at alexepsteinlist.com. And if you like the work we do at the Center for Industrial Progress and you want to accelerate it, you can become an accelerator. Go to industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. That's it for this week. Uh, in the coming weeks, we're going to have a lot of really interesting guests. We've got one on some national security issues that I think are really important. We, we're going to have one next week on this Arctic blast and how it's illustrating the complete inadequacy and really failure of unreliables around the US. And then I have another great guest in early March to talk about the fallacy of the social cost of carbon. So lots of interesting guests coming in the next several weeks. Uh, I'm looking forward to learning from them and I think you will enjoy it as well. So that is it for this week. I'll be back next week with a great guest. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.